During times of war, or really any time of suffering and hardship, morale can mean everything. During times of war, leaders often tell their own people that they're winning, even if they aren't, because they want to keep morale up. Maybe they tell captured enemies that their side is losing, even if they aren't, because they want those captives to have a low morale. Morale means everything for the confidence and the steadfastness of human beings. Now, as you might imagine, the morale of God's people was surely low at times during their exile in Babylon. Several weeks ago, we mentioned Psalm 137, where the people mourn by the waters of Babylon as they're mocked for the destruction of their city. In those moments, morale was probably pretty low. I would also imagine that morale could have been low at times, even for a faithful man like Daniel who was so in touch with God, who had seen so many incredible works of God before his very eyes. Even he had to have moments of doubt and frustration and discouragement, wondering just how much longer he could stand the exile in Babylon. Now, in our context today, it can be very easy for followers of Jesus to wrestle with low morale ourselves. We face times of suffering We deal with our own hardships. We might even face persecution. Uncertainty and chaos can leave us discouraged, can leave our morale shattered. But the good news during those challenging times is that we have passages like Daniel 7 to look to. Now, we've been in Daniel chapters 1 through 6 so far. Those are the chapters that are easy to talk about, easy to read, easy to preach. They're the stories about fiery furnaces and lion's dens and vegetable diets and handwriting on walls. Those are the stories we hear a lot. But then we get to chapters 7 through 12, and they're a little bit different. They can be hard to understand. They can be hard to read. And so preachers like me might be tempted to just... Focus on all the cool, easy stories of chapters one through six and kind of just ignore the rest. For readers like you, when you open your Bible and come to Daniel seven through twelve, you might be tempted to just move on to the next book. But even though these passages can be difficult, they are certainly unique and even hard to understand at times. There's great value that we can get from reading a passage like this. And one of the big things that Daniel 7 offers is encouragement and hope during times of challenge, if we're just willing to look at the big picture. So with that, open your Bibles to Daniel chapter 7. If you're using one of our chair Bibles, this will be located on page 631. And if you don't own a Bible, feel free to grab one from the welcome desk before you leave this morning. But before we start reading, let's pray and then we'll get started. Father, thank you for your word that we can gather around this morning, that we can hear from, that we can read, not just this morning, but but so often. I pray that we would just fall more and more in love with your word day in and day out. I pray that we would fall in love with the parts of your word that are even kind of strange, seem hard to relate to, like Daniel 7 through 12. I pray that we would read these words and that we would trust that you've put it in here for a reason that it can serve us and encourage us, and it can serve us and build up the church. 
So, God, I pray this morning as we read Daniel 7 that we'll see the big picture of what Daniel sees. We'll see the big picture that even though we face times of hardship, even though we face times of suffering, even during those times, God, we are not hopeless and we are not lost and we don't have to wonder whether or not you still care. God, we love you. We praise you. We ask all these things in the name of your son, Jesus. Amen. Starting in Daniel chapter 7, verses 1 through 3. In the first year of Belshazzar, king of Babylon, Daniel saw a dream and visions of his head as he lay in his bed. Then he wrote down the dream and told the sum of the matter. Daniel declared, I saw in my vision by night, and behold, the four winds of heaven were stirring up the great sea. And four great beasts came up out of the sea different from one another. So as we start out this morning, this is all happening. This whole vision occurs during the first year of King Belshazzar. Now, that means that this occurs roughly 50 years since Daniel was taken from his home. After 50 years of exile, that long, decade after decade after decade, you can understand why Daniel's morale might be pretty low. Why he might be feeling pretty discouraged. But not only has the exile been going on for a long time now, this is during the reign of a very bad king. Last year we read about Belshazzar, last week rather, about how he was more wicked than King Nebuchadnezzar. He was more arrogant than King Nebuchadnezzar. He was less reverent. He was a man of no decency and no respect whatsoever for God's people or for God himself. The exile's already been going on for a long time. And yet now we have Belshazzar on top of that. Now during this time, Daniel has a vision of his own. Instead of interpreting somebody else's vision, he has one for himself. He sees four winds from heaven stir up the sea. Now that's a pretty scary start to a vision. Because in the, in the ancient world, the sea was often viewed as a source of evil and chaos and fear. Seas were scary. You don't know what's happening in seas. All kinds of crazy, wicked things are what people thought of when they saw the sea. And here Daniel sees the sea being stirred up. A storm is brewing. Waves are crashing. He has got to be worried at the start of this vision. Things already appear somewhat sketchy. They're already a little bit unsure. And then it gets worse. Four beasts come up out of the water. Verse four. The first was like a lion and had eagle's wings. Then as I looked, its wings were plucked off and it was lifted up from the ground and made to stand on two feet like a man. And the mind of a man was given to it. And behold, another beast, a second one like a bear. It was raised up on one side. It had three ribs in its mouth between its teeth, and it was told, Arise, devour much flesh. After this I looked, and behold, another like a leopard with four wings of a bird on its back. And the beast had four heads, and dominion was given to it. So Daniel begins by describing the beast that he sees come out of the sea. Now in Genesis 1... 
God told Adam and Eve to subdue the beasts and have dominion over the beasts. But ever since sin and evil and wickedness and idolatry entered the world, the beasts aren't quite so easy to tame. The first beast we see is in the shape of a lion, most believe representing Babylon. Lions were a common symbol for Babylon and the beast's hair like an eagle and being given the mind of a man recalls one of the stories we read last week, chapter 4, when King Nebuchadnezzar is humbled by God, when he loses his mind, he lifts his eyes to heaven, and then his kingdom is restored. So the first beast represents Babylon. The second beast emerges looking like a bear, most believe representing either the Medes or the Persians, maybe both at the same time. Looking back to last week, these people, the Medes and the Persians, They're the ones who will eventually take King Belshazzar out. The third beast looks like a leopard. Some people believe that represents the Greeks. The leopard could symbolize the speed with which Alexander the Great conquered the world around him. And the four heads could represent the four kings that struggled for power after his death. But don't worry so much about all the details of the beasts or what they mean or who they symbolize, or what they represent? Those are certainly good questions, questions worth studying and reading about. But if you obsess over those details, you could miss the good, valuable, big point of this passage. The point so far is that the vision is terrifying. Daniel has to be afraid. He has to be concerned. But we've only described three beasts. The first three are scary, but here's where it gets really, really terrifying, starting in verse seven. After this, I saw in the night visions and behold, a fourth beast, terrifying and dreadful and exceedingly strong. It had great iron teeth. It devoured and broke in pieces and stamped what was left with its feet. It was different from all the beasts that were before it, and it had ten horns. I considered the horns and behold, there came up among them another horn, a little one, before which three of the first horns were plucked up by the roots. And behold, in this horn were eyes like the eyes of a man and a mouth speaking great things. So beast number four is the scariest beast of all. He has iron teeth. Some people believe that represents Rome. Compared to other beasts, this one beast, this fourth beast, is particularly brutal and powerful and violent. It has ten horns, one of which is loud and blasphemous and obnoxious. The other beasts submit to this fourth beast because of how scary he is. Now, when Daniel sees the fourth beast come out of the sea, this scary vision culminating in this ultimate moment of fear and dread and power and violence, Daniel has got to be ready for this whole vision to just be over with. I just want to wake up. I just want to know this is all a bad dream. Just let me just get out of bed. I don't want to have to see this stuff anymore. I don't want to see the beasts of the sea. I don't want to see the sea stirring up. I don't want to see all these terrible, horrifying visions. But then just like he's done so many times already in the book of Daniel, when things look their darkest, when things look dire, 
when things look utterly and completely hopeless. At that exact moment, that's where we see God step in. Let's read verses 9 through 12. As I looked, thrones were placed, and the Ancient of Days took his seat. His clothing was white as snow, and the hair of his head like pure wool. His throne was fiery flames, its wheels were burning fire. A stream of fire issued and came out from before him. A thousand thousand served him, and ten thousand times ten thousand stood before him. The court sat in judgment, and the books were opened. I looked then because of the sound of the great words that the horn was speaking. And as I looked, the beast was killed, and its body destroyed and given over to be burned with fire. As for the rest of the beasts, their dominion was taken away, but their lives were prolonged for a season and a time. So just at the right moment, God enters the scene. You can almost picture Daniel shaking in his boots, the beasts fighting and causing violence and problems and chaos. But then God enters the room and Daniel and even the beasts, they all stop and they look. Because the real ruler, the real king, the real one in charge, he's taking the throne. He's described as the ancient of days because unlike these four beasts, he's always been. He's always existed. His clothes and his hair are white, denoting purity and wisdom. That's not like the beasts. They're more about impurity and chaos. God's throne has wheels. He's not contained like the beasts. He's not unmoving or limited by space. The way these beasts and the kingdoms they represent are. And this God sits in judgment because unlike the beast from the sea, he has authority. Unlike the beast from the sea, he is righteous and he judges. He defeats the fourth beast. He takes away the dominion of the other beasts, even though they still hang around for a little while longer. The point is that God is so utterly unlike the beasts. He's so utterly unlike the kingdoms they represent. And even though a man like Daniel and even though people like you and me can't tame these frightening beasts, God can tame them. He has tamed them and he will tame them once and for all. But how? We see that in verses 13 and 14. I saw in the night visions and behold, with the clouds of heaven, there came one like a son of man. And he came to the ancient of days and was presented before him. And to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples, nations and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion, which shall not pass away. And his kingdom, one that shall not be destroyed. So God tames the wicked beasts, the kingdoms and the rulers of the earth by appointing one like a son of man. Now, clearly, this son of man is divine. It says that he comes with the clouds of heaven. He's not just some regular old human being. Clearly, he is God of some type. 
But the title, Son of Man, also tells us that even though he's God, he's also human. He's given eternal glory, eternal rule, eternal dominion forever, even over the beasts that Daniel has seen. Their kingdoms will end. They will be judged and they will be defeated. But this son of man's kingdom, it won't end. It won't be defeated. And he'll be the one doing the judging. Now, does that make you think of anyone? A son of man who's fully God, divine, but also man. In 2 Samuel 7, verses 12 through 14, David is promised that one of his offspring will be given a kingdom and dominion forever. One of his children, part of his family, will be given this kingdom and dominion. But even though this king will be part of David's family, that 2 Samuel 7 passage seems to hint that this man will have a very unique relationship with God. He will call God Father. And God will call him son. In Matthew chapter 22, verses 42 through 45, Jesus encounters the religious leaders and he asks them a question. Do you think the Messiah is the offspring of David? And they say, yeah, we do. We've read 2 Samuel 7. But then Jesus says, well, then why would David call him Lord in Psalm 110? An older man would never refer to his son as Lord or a grandfather to his grandson. That's just not good manners. How is it that he can be David's son and yet David call him Lord at the same time? Because Jesus is fully God and fully man. Because Jesus is the son of man from Daniel 7. Jesus is the one appointed by God to defeat the beasts. And when we read the New Testament and then read the Old Testament, it becomes clear that for God's people today, we don't have to wonder about who this son of man is, because that son of man from Daniel seven went to a cross and died a sacrificial death for you and for me. It's no mystery who the son of man is. The son of man is Jesus. Let's pick up in verse 15. As for me, Daniel, my spirit within me was anxious and the visions of my head alarmed me. I approached one of those who stood there and asked him the truth concerning all this. So he told me and made known to me the interpretation of the things. These four great beasts are four kings who shall arise out of the earth. But the saints of the Most High shall receive the kingdom and possess the kingdom forever, forever and ever. Understandably, Daniel is in complete awe of everything that he has just seen. The beast from the sea, God on his throne, the son of man appointed to rule forever. He can't believe all of it. He's trying to wrap his mind around all of this. So he goes and asks one of the thousands of servants of God that he sees in the vision. The servant gives him the short answer in verse 18. The short answer, if you want to remember it easily, is this. God wins. That's what the vision means. God wins. Regardless of how wicked the kingdoms of the earth are, 
regardless of how strong they seem, regardless of how intimidating they may appear, God wins. That's the story of Daniel 7. When we don't worry so much about all the little details and trying to decipher some kind of secret code or trying to discover who represents what or what symbolizes who, we can get the main point. That in the end, even as Daniel is suffering incredible hardship, he can be confident that in the end, when it's all said and done, even if the suffering lasts a whole lot longer, God wins. That's the simple overall message. Now, we could end there. After all, what better high note to end on than, hey, Keep on suffering because God wins in the end. All right, let's go see you next week. But we're not going to end there because there's more to Daniel's vision than just that. Even though God's people then and God's people now can be assured that when it's all said and done, God wins. It doesn't mean that they wouldn't experience pain and suffering. And in the same way, it doesn't mean that we won't experience pain and suffering. Pick up in verse 19. Then I desire to know the truth about the fourth beast, which was different from all the rest, exceedingly terrifying, with its teeth of iron and claws of bronze, and which devoured and broke in pieces and stamped what was left with its feet, and about the ten horns that were on its head, and the other horn that came up and before which three of them fell, the horn that had eyes and a mouth that spoke great things and that seemed greater than its companions. As I looked, this horn made war with the saints and prevailed over them until the Ancient of Days came and judgment was given for the saints of the Most High. And the time came when the saints possessed the kingdom. Thus, he said, as for the fourth beast, there shall be a fourth kingdom on earth, which shall be different from all the kingdoms. And it shall devour the whole earth and trample it down and break it to pieces As for the ten horns, out of this kingdom, ten kings shall arise and another shall arise after them. He shall be different from the former ones and shall put down three kings. He shall speak words against the Most High and shall wear out the saints of the Most High and shall think to change the times and the law. And they shall be given into his hand for a time, times and half a time. But the court shall sit in judgment. And his dominion shall be taken away to be consumed and destroyed to the end. And the kingdom and the dominion and the greatness of the kingdoms under the whole heaven shall be given to the people of the saints of the Most High. His kingdom shall be an everlasting kingdom and all dominion shall serve and obey him. Even though his defeat is sure. The beast is still a major source of suffering for the people of God. The passage says that he will defeat and overcome the people of God, that he will wear out the people of God. You can understand now why many people believe this fourth beast symbolizes Rome. After all, they're the ones who nailed Jesus to a cross. They're the ones who destroyed God's temple in 70 A.D., They're the ones who persecuted so many of the earliest Christians. Some believe the fourth beast 
represents Greece, specifically the cruelty of ruler Antiochus Epiphanes against God's people in the time between the Old and New Testaments. But the truth is that we don't need to focus so much on who or what or why this fourth beast represents. Because this fourth beast isn't just limited to Rome or Greece or any other single earthly kingdom. The truth is that the beasts that cause havoc for God's people, they're much bigger than that. In the New Testament, Rome or Babylon or even the idea of beasts would become symbolic for anyone or anything wicked, sinful and opposed to God and opposed to his people. We see pictures like this in the book of Revelation. But we also know as followers of Jesus, as God's people today, that beasts from the sea, they still exist. They're still around. We see echoes of these beasts in our world's obsession with power and violence. We see it in cases of injustice and greed. We see it across the world in countries that viciously persecute God's people even today. We even see it in our own country, even though we're often uncomfortable to admit it. Wickedness, idolatry, violence, greed, injustice, the things of the beasts, they're still all over the place. The power of Satan, sin, and death are still around. They still cause pain and suffering and havoc. But in spite of all those things, in spite of the fact that they're still around, that God's people still suffer, and that at many times it looks as if the beasts prevail. In spite of all that, the promise of Daniel 7 stands firm. It rings true. God wins. No matter what kind of suffering God's people face, no matter what different ways the beasts make themselves known, God's kingdom remains. Because God's appointed son of man remains. Jesus is still the king. Jesus still has an eternal kingdom ushered in at the cross. And one day, all who believe in Jesus as Savior and Lord, all who follow the son of man who comes on the clouds of heaven, look forward to inheriting that kingdom. Daniel closes in verse 28. Here is the end of the matter. As for me, Daniel, my thoughts greatly alarmed me and my color changed, but I kept the matter in my heart. Now, Daniel is still very overwhelmed when this whole vision comes to an end, even though it's a vision of hope and encouragement and promise and confidence. He still is overwhelmed. But Daniel keeps it in his heart. And Daniel knows that in the end, he can endure suffering in exile because God wins. And because we know that in the end, God wins, we too today can endure the suffering that Satan, sin and death and wicked earthly kingdoms bring about. And even if it leads to our death, which, according to this passage and according to what we see in the world, it often can. 
even if it leads to death, God's people don't have to be afraid. In Luke chapter 12, verses 4 and 5, Jesus tells us not to fear those who can kill us here on earth, but to fear God alone. Because even if wicked earthly kingdoms or strong, terrifying beasts get to us, even if they do kill us, they can't take God's kingdom away from us. They can't take the Son of Man away from us. We have that Son of Man on our side. And that Son of Man has already secured the victory. And we look forward to that day when his victory is seen by everyone, everywhere, once and for all. We celebrate the fact that the Son of Man has already defeated the beasts on the cross. He suffered that death specifically on our behalf, sinful man. As he's heading to the cross, he specifically refers to himself as the Son of Man in Matthew 26, 64. One of 81 different times where Jesus calls himself Son of Man. One day Jesus will return after his resurrection and ascension. He will come back. The resurrection, the ascension, those things have already occurred. Now we look forward to his return. He'll establish his kingdom and creation once and for all, for all to see. We see pictures of what that might look like in Revelation chapter 21. Another passage of hope and promise and confidence in the midst of suffering. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. Huh. No more sea. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them, and they will be his people, and God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning nor crying nor pain anymore for the former things have passed away. When God's kingdom is established, when Jesus returns, Revelation 21 tells us no more sea, no more beasts, no more wickedness, no more death. No more suffering or pain or tears. No more loud and obnoxious and blasphemous kingdoms. The voice that is heard is the voice of God. In the end, God wins. And knowing that, Daniel can endure. And knowing that, you and I can endure. Whatever suffering, violence, and pain is thrown our way. And even if we die, we look forward to that kingdom because it stands firm regardless of what happens to us. God wins. Let's pray. Father, on the one hand, Many would say that it's foolish, it's naive to try and compare the suffering or the hardship that we face to the suffering and hardship that Daniel and the rest of the Israelites were facing in Babylon. 
But God, even though our exile might not be like theirs, even though our situation might not always seem very comparable to theirs, suffering and pain go across time. They go across cultures, suffering and pain and hardship and persecution cause damage no matter who they affect or when they're affecting people. Father, I pray that during our times of suffering and hardship, maybe even persecution, that we would be confident that in the end, you win. In the end, death and pain and tears and suffering, there'll be no more. And Father, I pray that we can hold fast that confidence, that we can endure not by our own strength, but by the strength that you provide, by the promises that you give, and by the hope that we have in the future we look forward to. When your kingdom is seen, your voice is heard, and the Son of Man reigns over all. God, keep us strong. Give us courage as we look forward to that day. We love you. We praise you. We thank you that all of these things are possible. That our hope and our deliverance and our future rest, they're all guaranteed because of what your son did on the cross. We ask all these things in his name. Amen.